0: Welcome to Romans Untangled, the podcast where we take a seemingly difficult book of the Bible and untangle it so that we can enjoy its beauty. Season 3, Episode 8, The Hardened Heart, Romans 11, 7-10. Hardened. It's not a positive quality when we talk about people to say that they are Hardened. This week on Romans Untangled, we're going to take a look at how Scripture talks about the hardening of the heart that takes place in the human soul and how Christ can melt that heart of stone we have. want to welcome you once again back to Romans Untangled. This is Pastor Steve Treikler here from Hope Community Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Welcoming you to my multi-dollar studio in my basement where the microphone is propped up by a sequence game. We're glad to be back. Hey, i uh, if you're a frequenter of the show and you've been uh, podcasting us week by week, and I know a lot of you are binging this and so you wait for the whole season to come out, but if you're not, I apologize for last week we were unable to get an episode out. And that is because um, on Saturday... Previous to when I normally uh, record these messages on Mondays, a week before they come out, my mom had a fall. My mom's name's Ruth, and uh, she fell. She's 86 years old, and and she fell. And so uh, she's from Hibbing, Minnesota. She still lives in the home I grew up in. But she was transported to uh, Duluth, Minnesota, where the hospitals are able to handle some of the trauma. She hit her head. It's uh, looking very good. I uh, think the prognosis is great. She had to have a little surgery to help with a little bit of the trauma that her head uh, in, endured, but uh, she's doing well. And uh, I would appreciate just prayers for her. Her name is Ruth, Ruth Treichler. Uh, you know, if you're a parent, uh, you never stop being a parent. And my mom, although she's 86, uh, she's still my mama, and she still treats me as such. And so uh, just prayers out to my mama. She's on the, she's on the recovery, but uh, we'd just appreciate more prayer for her. And I'll kind of keep you updated as things go on, but things are, are looking good. Hey, if you, if you're from Minnesota here, you know that winter came here. In a matter of 24 hours, in fact, the, the newscasts were talking about some of the, the, the largest temperature swing we had in 40 years went from uh, 76 degrees on November 2nd down to around 20-something of a few days later. So uh, it has been uh, quite the ride up here in Minnesota. Winter came very quickly and, and early this year. You know, one of the things we're doing on this season of Romans Untangled is we're talking about uh, people from church history. I want to talk to you about faithful followers of Jesus who've had an impact on the entire world for Christ in spite of their flaws, and they all have them. This week is no exception. Uh, we last week we talked about uh, Katie Lutheran Luther, excuse me, uh, Martin Luther's wife. Just a delightful character. I love her. She's fantastic. And this week I want to talk about a contemporary of theirs. It is uh, John Calvin. Now, some of you are very familiar with John Calvin. He's obviously the founder of Calvinism. If If that's something uh, that you're uh, ascribed to, I know in many ways I do. I think that John Calvin has had a huge influence on not only the areas of church, but also theology and politics, uh, believe it or not. And so this week I want to look at uh, the person of John Calvin. Uh, Calvin is the name of my youngest son. I named him after three particular people. Uh, was John Calvin, of course, this person, but also after uh, the uh, the baseball player, Cal Ripken, who I just thought was a fantastic baseball player. My son absolutely loves baseball. And then also after Calvin and Hobbes, if you're familiar with that <laughs> amazing cartoon. Uh, I know it, it uh, no longer is being written out there, but a, just a phenomenal cartoon. And it is based off the philosopher John Calvin, that's where the name for Calvin and Hobbes comes from. So Calvin, of course, was a philosopher. Let's go back and talk about him. He's in the time of the Reformation. It's during this period of of, uh, of church history that this takes place. He's born in 1509 in France. And his father is a, rel- you know, in those times, fathers kind of dictated their son's vocation and what he was supposed to do. And his father says, "I want you to go into the uh, the ministry." And so, in the up until the mid nineteen twenty or fifteen twenties, excuse me, Calvin followed that process. He went to school for that, he became a scholar, he spoke excellent Latin, he was a philosopher, and he was starting to study theology in Paris. But in the middle of that, his father changes his mind and says that he should go into law. And so he moves over to the University of New Orleans and he starts going into law, something that he doesn't have a passion for. And while he's there for those years, he starts to study humanism. And that's a big thing at this time. The Renaissance is taking off at the same time that the Reformation is taking off. And they are definitely linked. If you ever get a chance to study this, it's a great little, uh, a beautiful little historical study to look at how the Renaissance and the Reformation touch each other with both a theological and kind of a a political but also a philosophical way of understanding people that is not bound by some of the ways they were being taught before. And so in this, he learns all kinds of things about uh, uh, Greek, Greek classics. Uh, he starts to, to look into philosophy with uh, Plato and Aristotle. And, and in this whole thing, he's opening his mind to new things, and the Reformation comes his way. And he starts to read Martin Luther, and his life is turned upside down. Quoting Luther, he says, He, that means God, tamed tamed to teachableness a mind too stubborn for its years, for I was strongly devoted to the superstitions of the papacy that nothing less could draw me from the strengths of Meyer. And so this mere taste of true godliness that I received set me on fire with such a desire to progress that I pursued the rest of my studies more coolly, although I did not give up on them altogether. In other words, even though he was still in college, he majored on God. <laughs> it's what he's saying. I just read and learned and sought after God, even though he was studying to be a lawyer and in the midst of all that his life gets just gets just completely turned around. And when he's marked as being a Lutheran, which is kind of the Protestant or you're a you're a person who's not Catholic, you you've shifted away from that. He uh, is persecuted then when he's in Paris and he seeks refuge in basil. and there while he's in basil, He writes this book that was to affect Western history as much as really, honestly, any other book could. And the book is simply called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And the point was that he was trying to write something for the French people that were getting influenced by the Reformation and had a whole bunch of questions about who was God, what were the sacraments? What did it mean to be saved? What did it mean to have a faith in Jesus Christ? How are we free? What's Christian liberty mean? And what does it mean to be a person in the world, but also involved in in politics or in political government? And so in 1536, at at the very old age of 27 years, John Calvin writes this first edition of the Institute of Of Christian religion, and it starts to take absolutely off. And he starts to revise it over the years. And in all of these, he argues for uh, God's beauty, God's wonder, God's election, God's predestination. Of course, that's what he's most famous for is because when we say the word Calvinism, you often just think that God is the one who predestines God's sovereign, and that we don't have any real choices. That's probably unfair to put on Calvin because that's not what he actually believed, but a lot of people put that on him when he would say that. What Calvin was basically trying to say is God is in control, complete control over all these things, and that he also, in in addition to that, he argued for what he called the indefectibility of grace. In other words, that grace will never be withdrawn from those who come to faith, that this was a, a an attempt for Calvin to give people real peace, that and he he quotes this he, he has a quote here he says he will obtain an unwavering hope of final perseverance as it is called if he reckons himself a member of him who is beyond hazard of falling away. In other words, he was trying to say you have security in Jesus Christ because of what he's done, and so. Uh, Calvin becomes kind of a player, almost, he's a contemporary of Lutheran, but he's a little bit after him, he's born after him, so he lasts a little bit longer, and he starts to write books. He's more of a scholar than Luther. Uh, he, his personality, you know, I, I obviously never met the gentleman, but from all my reading and having been a person who has been very influenced by him I would say that I'm not very attracted to his personality. He was, he was an intellect, he was a person who he was an intellectual, he was a person who kind of, you know, kind of stood off to the side and 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 maybe had kind of snarky things to say. He came across as kind of a cold person where Luther just was this warm individual. You'd want to hang out with Luther. I don't really think you'd wanna hang out with Luther. John Calvin, he had some real close friends, but just very few. And outside of that, you, you probably felt maybe even perhaps judged. And so Luther, or excuse me, John Calvin becomes very influential in the church. And he, he, uh, he starts to, uh, through a series of events, he gets exiled out of the area. He gets put back into um, an area in Geneva, Switzerland, and all of a sudden starts to really understand how to transform a city with the gospel. And it's really remarkable what's take place in Geneva during that time in the the 1530s, late 1530s, all the way uh, up until his death, which is in 1564. He uh, pastors in Geneva. He helps with the government. It becomes kind of this city on a hill. And it, it is remarkable. Now, there's a ton of things that... John Calvin does that actually cause many historians to question his, you know, importance in society. And probably the most important was the execution of Michael Servetus in 1553. And again, John Calvin is not in an official role, but he he allows this execution of this heretic, this man who denies the Trinity. Uh, he allows that to happen right in his view in his city, the city that he helped take over in uh, in Geneva in 1553. He marries, John Calvin marries in uh, 1549. Excuse me, in 1540, he marries a woman and it is the weirdest, con- most convoluted uh, dating relationship. He just kind of picks her out of nowhere. But by the end, he really does fall in love with her. And although she is a widow of someone, she has two children from that previous marriage. Uh, they have no more children together. They had one child that died in infancy. He's only married to her for nine years, but he absolutely falls in love with her and and walks with her through that. John Calvin is known for being kind of the founder of what today would be modern day Presbyterianism or Reformed, or even there'd be a significant number of like Baptist, uh, Baptist, regular Baptists, they would be called, or, or uh, Reformed Baptists. I myself would say that I have a lot of influence by John Calvin in understanding his views on our union with Christ, understanding his views of grace and what that has to do with us as far as being people uh, who are under God's sovereignty, and that's not in competition with our, that we have real responsibility and real choices, and that's been influential for me. So uh, there's, there's kind of a, a little bit of a John Calvin. I really hope you take more time to look into him uh, if you want to. Now, let's get on to Romans. I wanted to really get into this great passage here. We have uh, just a few verses we're covering today. We're looking at Romans chapter 11, and we are going to cover Romans chapter 11, verses 7 to 10. Let me read them just as we get going here. If you got a Bible with you, that's always the best place to go because I'm going to back up in Romans chapter 11 just a little bit so we can take a look at this. But Romans chapter 11, verses 7 to 10 says this, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever okay just we have four verses that's it we're all recovering you know in this season what we're doing is we're looking at Romans chapters 9 10 11 and the big question the big question we're dealing with here is what happened to the Jews why are there so few in the churches and and what Paul's doing here is he's trying to explain a couple things the big question is is did the word of God fail did God blow it did God promise one thing that didn't work and so he went to a plan B and Paul's answer to that is no way. That's not what happened. Okay, He is really going after this. Not as though the word of God failed. That's in chapter 9. That's a huge piece to the puzzle. As we look at uh, Romans 9, 6, it's not as though the word of God had failed. That's big in what Paul is trying to say. And he's trying to explain what it is. And he talks about the sovereignty of God that God's in control of all this, and also human responsibility—that people are also rejecting Him—and yet God remains uh, has a remnant for Himself, and that's what we talked about last week, Romans chapter 11 verses one to six. And you just—I just, just want to look at a couple verses here. The first thing is Romans chapter 11 one, and He says, "I ask then, did God reject His people? By no means." And he gives a reason for that. The first reason is, hey, I'm an Israelite, and so therefore that just denies the whole thing right away because saying if God rejected all these people, then no Israelites would be in, and I am. That's one of them. But secondly, he also says, hey, I also have a remnant of people that are always mine. And he goes back to the the Elijah story where he says there's still... uh, Seven thousand who have not bowed the knee to bowed the knee to Baal. So God knows what He's doing. He always preserves people for Himself. And then it says in verse five and six. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. And so to understand the idea of grace—that is, God's giving His mercy it is saying that this comes from God, it's a gift, okay? It's not what we're earning and what we deserve, okay? That's huge as we look into this, where even though Israel seeks to become right with God, they're not okay with God, why? Because they sought after it as if it were by works and not by grace. That's kind of a summary of where we've been so far. Now, here we get into this word, this word is hardened. It says, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now, this is by far one of the most difficult things in all of theology to understand, is this idea of what does it mean to be hardened, and who does the hardening? Let me lean into uh, Douglas Moo in his uh, commentary, the shorter one. I think I've mentioned these before. This is from his Encountering the Book of Romans. He says this. He says, perhaps even more controversial is the dark side of election. uh, Election meaning God's predestination. God's hardening of people. To be sure, Paul does not claim explicitly in this passage that God hardens people. He simply asserts that they were hardened. That's verse 7. But the Old Testament passage he's going to lean into here, right after he says this, quotes uh, that God is in an active role. He's the one who gives a spirit of stupor. That's in verse 8. And he's quoting here from, it's a direct quote from Isaiah 29, verse 10. Okay? However, Isaiah 29 verse 10, if you link it back, is actually referring, so the prophet Isaiah, what Paul is quoting here, the prophet Isaiah is actually quoting back to Deuteronomy chapter 29. So just to follow some church history here, uh, you have uh, Isaiah, which is a prophecy to the exiles of Israel after they've been disobedient and they're kicked out of the land, and Isaiah is reminding them of what Moses told them before they got into the promised land in chapter 29 of the book of Deuteronomy and let me just read this here because that's not quoted in this passage this is Deuteronomy 29 i'm going to read it in context i'm going to, it's verse 4 is what we're looking at here but i want to read Deuteronomy 29:1 to 6 and it says this Uh, These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab, in addition to the covenant he had made with them at Horeb. Moses summoned all the Israelites and said to them, "'Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land. With your own eyes you saw those great trials, those signs and great wonders.'" But to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or eyes that see, or ears that hear. Yet the Lord says, during the 40 years that I led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. Okay, so this, this is tricky. This is tough sledding here. There's no, no question about it. Probably one of the most difficult questions again is what's going on here with this idea of God doesn't give you a mind to understand it and yet at the very same time he says, I did all these great things while you were in the wilderness wandering around. I did these things, why? So that you might know that I'm the Lord. Okay, so um, let's go back to Mu. Well, let's continue with his quote. Mu says, thus, in chapter 9, verse 18 of the book of Romans, and that's where it says, therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Okay, so, and again, I'm quoting from Mu here again. He says, the state of hardening or spiritual insensitivity comes from God. Again, however, we must notice that God predicts a time limit on God's hardening, and we're going to see that in our next few episodes. He's going to talk about God's hardening is partial in time because God wants to make the Israelites jealous and different things, right? You're going to see that in chapter 11, verse 25, and we're going to see that next week in verses 11 and 12. Going back to Moo, how we can factor this into our conclusions about the theological issue of double predestination is unclear. And double predestination, just, this is me speaking here for a minute, uh, is nothing more than does God only choose people to be saved, but does he also choose people not to be saved? All right? And that's a very debated issue in theology. I think most people would say in some way, shape, or form, God, of course, does choose people to be saved but what about the other? Now, back to Mu. Perhaps Paul is speaking corporately about the nation of Israel in verses 11 and 12 and verse 25, while verse 7 refers to the hardening he brings on individuals. In that case, this hardening may be very well a permanent sentence of damnation. However, even if we conclude that Paul teaches a duality and predestination, such that God elects both to salvation and hardens to damnation. We must remember one critical difference, and this is key. God hardens people who have already chosen their own destiny via their sin in Adam. So this is, this is just very important to understand. And he goes on to say, when God elects us to be saved, he gives us a gift that we do not deserve and never could deserve when he hardens he confirms the sentence that people deserve and have already chosen for themselves okay so so here's kind of the big the big idea when we say hardening of the heart and when it's used in scripture and it's often used to describe how god is the one who does this hardening okay and and in a sense that is true but it's only true in the fact that when god quote-unquote, hardens the human heart, it means that he does not interact with that individual to change the course of human history for them in a different direction. They're already headed that way on their own. So it's not as if God actively hardens, in a sense. It's more that God... It sees this person's movement like that and does not interact. Now, you can argue and say, and I think it's true, you could say, well, that still seems to be a choice of God, and it is, it's a choice to not engage, okay? And that, that's fine, but it's different than what I'd call double predestination, where it's, where I, I don't believe in that idea of double predestination, where God, like, causes or Therefore, there's absolutely no opportunity whatsoever for a real decision for people to make, really about anything, but especially even salvation. And I think this is true if you look scripturally at the the 19 times that this phrase is used in the book of Exodus. And that's when this phrase becomes popular. It talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. You see, it starts in chapter 7. It's used three times in in. Uh, chapter seven, God says, "But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt." And then twice it describes in in chapter seven, it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and it goes on to say that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, right? But when we get to chapter eight, it says, "But when." Pharaoh saw that there was relief, so the, the magicians are able, his magicians are able to do something and cause relief from the plague that God brings on, it says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Okay, so, so who's hardening Pharaoh's heart? Is God hardening Pharaoh's heart or is Pharaoh hardening Pharaoh's heart? And I think the answer is yes. Right? Yes. And that's a bit complicated because biblically, if God is the only one that hardens human hearts, then we would not be responsible for that. There's nothing I can do then, right? God is the one who does this for me. So, and it's interesting then because if you look biblically then at some of the other important passages in the New Testament, You start to to see uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And he describes, Paul is describing that time of Israel's history where they were not listening to the gospel and listening to God and and to repent and turn back to Him. In verse 14 of chapter 3, it says, But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. In other words, that there's a hardening that happens because the human heart is bent upon self-justification self-seeking after uh, our own righteousness apart from God. And therefore, unless God intervenes in a unique way and opens our eyes to this, you won't see this. But that does not mean this work is hard. I'm not going to lie. This work, it's difficult. But it's the way that scripture is written. This does not mean that you're not responsible for that. The book of Hebrews makes it really clear. In Hebrews chapter 3, he quotes from the, the author of Hebrews, quotes, and he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he's going to quote right here from Psalm 95, where it says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways, and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then the author of Hebrews says this, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see that there? So there's a hardening that's happening and you can harden yourself in rebellion against God and yet, And and you could say, well, God has to open your eyes, and that's true, but also the author of Hebrews is saying here, take care that that's not the case, and then the answer is that to be involved with other people who exhort and encourage one another as long as it's called today, which is every day, so that I will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So in other words, uh, it it is also my responsibility to not be hardened. You cannot be hardened by sin. You can open your heart up. And yet, of course, at the same time, this is a spiritual act of God. And so if you're if you're saying, God, I want my heart not to be hardened, God, would you open my heart not to be hardened? Both are true at the same time. And my favorite quote on this is from Charles Spurgeon. And he says this, The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. Let me say that again. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. It is our responsibility to not do that. And yet God is the one. And so God gets the praise even in our own softening of our hearts. And it's something we owe God. God to do. And that's what the Apostle Paul is getting after in this passage in the book of Romans. He's saying that the people of Israel have hardened their hearts. They have hardened their hearts to the message of the gospel. They've hardened their hearts to following him. And yes, this is going to be something that they are responsible for. And yes, you could say, God is the one who hasn't turned them. Yes, that's also very true. But that's never an excuse, never excuse in the Bible, never excuse today. So friends, let me, like the author of the book of Hebrews, ask you, is your heart getting hard towards God? Is your heart getting hard towards following him? Is is there something that's starting to chip away or say this, this son is, of the gospel is shining and it could melt your heart, melt the wax, as Spurgeon says, or is it hardening the clay of your heart? And that's our responsibility. So if there's a hardness of your heart, the scripture teaches that take care of that and also invite others in and say, would you just encourage me in that? might be real hard. I'm, I'm asking you maybe to do something really hard as you see your life start to to wander in a way. And I know some people give it fancy names uh, like deconstructionism or whatever else. And some of that's very legit. There's real questions that need to be answered and that's that's great. But something slips in there where it goes from doubt to unbelief to hardness. And God, would you just open our hearts? Would you just, by the power of your spirit, would you just change us? And you may need to talk to some people in your life and say, I'm getting hardened by sin. I'm getting hardened by deception. And I'm asking you today to maybe look at this passage and look at others and say, wow, man, that that scares me. I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to be that kind of person. May the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, melt your heart and not cause it to become hardened like clay when the sun hits it. Thanks for joining us this week on Romans Untangled. Next time, we're gonna pick it up right there in uh, chapter 11, in verse 11, and we're gonna start to say, hey, wait a minute, did they fall so far? Did the Israelites so far fall so far that they can't even possibly come back? And Paul is saying, not a chance. There's still the invitation for them. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next week on Romans Untangled.